The text for the sermon this morning is taken from the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, chapter 2. I don't know how good your memory is, but the last time I was here, the last two times I was here, I preached on Ephesians 1, so I thought I might as well to chapter 2. We'll see if it all fits together after a long time in between. So, our text then is, the verses 1 through 10, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. After the sermon, let us sing together from Psalm 116, the stanzas 7, 9, and 10. Beloved brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, as I indicated before the reading that it was some time ago that I preached on the chapter 1 of the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, that chapter which basically is two long sentences, begins with what at that time I called a eulogy to God, praising God for all the great things that he had done in saving a people out of grace in Jesus Christ. Of course, the second part was one long sentence where Paul uttered a prayer. That prayer would also lead one to self-examination as to how we are doing in faith and love. If you read through that chapter again, you will see these kind of elements. But if you think of that first chapter, even as you read it, and then you take, what do I take away from that? You could say for myself, well, it was a chapter with great encouragement because we were encouraged in being reminded of God's power displayed in Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, who now rules over all things for the sake of his church. It just it makes you feel good to read those kind of things. It gives you confidence to face life in this troubled world. But now, in our text for this morning, we see that Paul is not done yet writing about the blessing of being God's children. For one thing he has not really yet touched on is how our position is out of grace. That is, it is a gift from God to an undeserving people. Of course, he's alluded to this when he wrote about God predestining 
people to salvation from before the foundation of the world. But as I said, there was an illusion. He didn't really yet spell out how exactly this worked, beyond saying that it was according to the purpose of God's will. But now in the next part of this letter, Paul further shows the amazing character of salvation as he brings out that we are saved by grace alone. He mentions it twice, you know, a message we can't hear often enough, but even as we think even of coming up to Reformation Day, very fitting also to think about that really core of the Reformation message, salvation out of grace alone in Jesus Christ. Now, of course, this phrase, as I said, even tying it in with Reformation Day just over a week away, it is a familiar phrase, but familiarity, of course, always has the danger that we grow numb to what it means. Now our text gives us opportunity therefore, therefore to reflect on this and as we do that we will be amazed by grace which should also then as a result lead us to want to praise our great and gracious God. And therefore I proclaim to you this morning by grace we have been saved and we will be amazed by grace as we consider, first of all, from what we have been saved, secondly, how we have been saved, and thirdly, for what we have been saved. So by grace we have been saved. And then we begin with from what we have been saved. Now what it comes down to is that we have been saved from death. Very clear in the opening verses of our chapter. And you recognize that Paul is not referring here in the first place to physical death, but he is referring to spiritual death. And this comes out, as he writes, about being dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. For really, you can say death is a description for life after the fall into sin. You can be very much physically alive, yet you are spiritually dead. Because you live now a life in separation from God. And when you are separated from God, there's death. Real life is found in fellowship with God. Even more, it's not just a separation from God. But we can even speak about an opposition to God. Because one is walking in the ways of the world. The ways of Satan. And this comes out when Paul writes about following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The prince of the power of the air, which is, of course, the evil one. Now, as we read these words, including the words about his readers living in the passions of their flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, you know, when we read that, we... As we think that through, we might have actually a bit of trouble connecting with those words. You know, you could say, well, we can understand it, that Paul would write these kind of words to, let's call them, first-generation Christians. Especially if they came from a Gentile, a heathen background, where they lived in the most wicked way or followed idols into all kind of perversity and sinful conduct. And we could also say... 
I can sympathize, I can understand how these words would apply to someone who, who's lived a life of unbelief and the gospel has come to that person at some stage in life and then they, they left that life and they began to serve the living God after living a life in which they did all kind of wicked, sinful, perverse things. So, you know, we could say, okay, I can understand it. Such a person can identify with this. And such a person, for example, we can think, well, that person really knows how to sing that song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. You see, we can picture that for a person that Paul would have written to, heathens becoming Christians, or today, unbelievers leaving a sinful way, becoming Christians. But for the many of us, and perhaps most of us, if not all of us, who have grown up among God's people, who have known the Lord since as far as back as we can remember, having been born within the covenant, it is really hard to think about oneself in those terms. To be sure, we might have to admit there are some sinful things that we can remember doing thinking sinful things but but it seems too much to say well that we were ruled or living in the passions of the flesh now for this reason therefore we should note how Paul was not just referring to his readers but he included himself or he may have started by writing and you were dead but by the time he comes to verse 3 he switches to the first person among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, we might even think for the Apostle Paul, okay, we say we can, we can understand that, you know, Paul, before he became Paul, he was Saul. He did not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and he persecuted the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But... That's true, you know, Paul is guilty of those kind of things, and he has admitted that on occasion, later also as an apostle. But as far as we know, you could say Paul never lived an immoral life. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He lived an upright life as much as he could, even though he did not understand, of course, the purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's almost too much to say that, that these words would even fit for the apostle Paul in that sense. But what comes out, though, is that what Paul is saying here really is true for everyone. Jew or Gentile Christian back in Paul's days, new Christian or one who has grown up as a Christian. The reality is that, that we were all once dead in our trespasses and sins. That, that by nature we are all children of wrath, worthy of God's condemnation. And, you know, every time we have a baptism, we are reminded of that, and parents even acknowledge that about their children. The children just born, who can't, they haven't done anything wrong yet, you could say, maybe beyond being a bit colicky and fussing and wanting dinner when it suits them, but you can't say really those, those children are, are doing all kinds of bad things. They're just little babies doing the things that babies do. And yet we confess, every parent confesses that about their children, that by nature they are children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so every believer, also those who have known the Lord since birth, will 
will continue, of course, to feel that tug of the sinful nature. We always have to fight against the inclination to sin, to revert to the old ways. It's in us, that old way. It wants to always reestablish itself. That respect to Christian life is a constant struggle, a constant tug of war between walking in the way of the Lord and walking in the ways of the passions of the flesh. Now, what might have been easier to grasp for the Ephesians, especially if they had experienced a radical change in their manner of life and becoming a Christian, must be grasped, indeed must be acknowledged by us too, even if we have walked with the Lord our whole life. And this point, of course, is also made in in our catechism, first part of the catechism. For to really appreciate grace, if you think of the catechism, yes, it communicates the gospel of grace, but to really taste grace, you first of all have to really speak about how great your sins and misery are. And we teach this also to the covenant children born within the congregation. They have to learn to see themselves as sinners. That self-knowledge has to mature before you could say they're also ready to participate in a celebration of the Lord's Supper. And we too need to realize that God did not come to us because he found something pleasing within us, something acceptable to him that sets us apart from the rest of mankind. He he did not pick us because we are the nicest people in the world. No. At times you might even think God seems to have chosen the worst of the bunch and to make them his people. So as we think about that, Paul's words then impressed upon the Ephesians who by this point were sitting under the glow of the gospel that as they, as they had been also reminded of God's blessing, choosing them, God's power in Christ, it's not because you are better than anyone else. And the same is true for us. It's not because we are worthy. By nature, we are children of wrath. And, and if God would pull back from us that that old nature would re-establish itself at a speed that we can hardly begin to imagine. And so to also taste the gospel, to rejoice in grace, we need to admit, to use the words from that hymn, Amazing Grace again, that God saves wretches like us. And this is hard to say. So hard that We won't say it unless the Holy Spirit works in our heart. He gives us a new heart. And even then, we find it hard to admit openly. For just think, how would we feel if I suggested that we would do something which would be very untypical of a Reformed congregation, but if we would say, I would say, let's now say in unison, I am by nature a child of wrath. That would be awkward because we don't do those kind of things in a Reformed church. You know, that's the kind of things that sounds a bit more like a, an AA meeting where people have to say, my name is so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic. Well, actually, when we come to church, we actually have to say, my name is so-and-so and I am a sinner. We have to say that. If we don't say that, even if we don't say it out loud, we say it in our heart. By nature, 
I am a child of wrath, a sinner. And we have to say that if we are going to taste the goodness of God's grace. Now, God's grace then is amazing because it comes to undeserving sinners. We learn to see further how amazing his grace is when we consider how we are saved. That's our second point. As to how we are saved, well, primacy of place goes to how God does this in Jesus Christ. We saw that already, chapter 1, all about God's predestining us in his Son from before the foundation of the world. Really, you say, a Christological explanation of salvation. We have been chosen in Christ. We have been adopted through Christ. We have been redeemed by Christ's blood. But now in the words of our text, the Apostle Paul expands further how we are saved by Christ, taking things he, he mentioned about God doing in Christ in the concluding confession of, of the prayer he uttered in chapter 2. If you look back there, for example, in verse 20, he, he said there that, that God raised Christ from the dead, and seated him in the heavenly places, putting all things under his feet. But note now how we read in verse 5 and 6, that God raised us up with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Now, this is again remarkable, we have to really think this through, because with respect to our Lord, these were physical events. Well, for us as believers, they are not physical events, but they are spiritual events. We are reminded of what we also read together in Romans chapter 6, where, where Paul connects it to baptism. He says, baptism symbolizes you have died with Christ and you have been raised with him. So we have undergone a death and a resurrection, spiritual death and resurrection. Here, of course, Paul goes a step further because not only having died with Christ and being raised with him, he also says we have ascended with him. So we can picture ourselves actually sitting in the heavens at the right hand of the Father in Jesus Christ. Now, notice the the spiritual effects of these physical events in the life of our Lord. People who have been transformed from death to life Receded in the heavens. It shows actually here that in Christ we have been redeemed. And redemption always has to do with being restored to your original position. Think of people who were redeemed because they had lost their land. They got their land back. Or they had lost their freedom. They got their freedom back. Well, we have been restored as we sit spiritually with Christ in the heavens. We have been restored to the position of dominion. That God gave at the beginning. For here's what salvation is all about. Being restored to life. We lost life in the fall. Restored in Christ because he died. We have died with him. Been raised with him. We have regained that dominion that we also lost in the fall into sin. And the how of salvation therefore first of all involves Christ. But it does not stop there. There is also faith. We read in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. 
Now we have to note here how faith is the instrument by which salvation is given to us. Of course, faith, well, that, that was at the core of Paul's letters, for example, to the Romans and the Galatians, where he had to interact also with the teaching that we are saved by doing the works of the law. No, we stress time and again, we are saved by faith, by faith alone. All the gifts of Christ come to us. We must think this through further, lest we misunderstand the role of faith. For both here as well as in the letter to the Romans and Galatians, when Paul stresses faith, as I said, he does that in contrast to works. So faith, notice, is the absence of works. And the reason we have to dwell on this for a moment is because there is the tendency to say, say, okay, well, no human works in terms of all kind of keeping of the works of the law, but then faith is treated as a human work that that takes care of everything. So basically, faith is the saving work that we do to share in the benefits of Christ. Now, as we're talking about this, it might come across a bit as as hair-splitting, you could say. But it's important to do this. It's important here, you could say, to split the hairs so we may see the amazing character of grace. For to bring out the subtleness of the error that we are kind of interacting with here is just listen carefully to the following two statements. And then in your own mind, you pick the correct one. Again, you know, I could ask you to raise your hands, but we don't do those kind of things. You could do it in a catechism class, but not here. So here it goes. Two statements. Which is the correct one? We are saved because of faith, or we are saved through faith. Saved because of faith, or we are saved through faith. Maybe in your mind you say, well, is there even a difference? Yes, there is a difference, a big difference. If you learned our catechism well, the Lord's Day that should come to mind is Lord's Day 23, question and answer 61. Because after the previous question and answer has explained how we are righteous by faith alone, it then asks, why do you say that you are righteous only by faith? And the answer states, not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, for only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. I can receive this righteousness and make it my own by faith only. So faith actually does not save us. Christ saves us. And he does it through faith. Similar thing also stressed in the Belgian Confession, especially article uh, 22 and 23, worthwhile reading afterwards. See, and this maintains that we are saved out of grace. For the moment we say we are saved because of faith, then we make our faith the ground of our salvation, and we shift to what we do rather than to what God does. Only by saying we are saved through faith do we give God all the honor and glory and we recognize the proper place, the important place of faith, but it is the instrument, not the ground of our salvation. Paul underlines also the gracious character of salvation when he adds in verse 8, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For you see, the faith by which we embrace our Lord Jesus Christ 
as Savior is itself a gift. It is part of God's generous salvation package in which everything that we need is given to us. And we could never have that faith if the Holy Spirit had not given us a new heart to also wholeheartedly embrace our Savior. Now as we work through this passage, it should become clear how Paul's words deepen our amazement at God's grace in saving sinners. For salvation from sin and from the wrath of God is truly a gift to sinners who by nature are children of wrath. And through union with Christ, through faith, we are given new life. We are restored to rule with Christ. And, and for the Ephesians, as they read that, you know, that would have been a glorious message, but you could say it would also have been a very humbling message, just in case they had thought to themselves, boy, we are, we are really good people. You know, we have believed in Jesus Christ and all those other people out in Ephesus over there, bad people. They did not make the good choice. So they could have had kind of a sense of spiritual superiority as they looked down their noses at others. Can it happen to us too? We think we're Christians. We believe in Jesus Christ. That, that's good for us. You know, and all those terrible people out there, they haven't done that. But we are made to realize that we are what we are only by the grace of God. He has come to us. He has given us new life in Jesus Christ. He has given us the faith we need to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we look around and we see all the people who don't want to serve the Lord, we have to say, there, but for the grace of God, go I. I would do exactly the same thing if God had not come to me and powerfully changed me and renewed me and given me a heart with which to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we might even do well to pick up the second stanza of the hymn, Amazing Grace. Was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. There's no reason to boast for anyone, only to be thankful for God's grace towards us. But we can see, well, though, that Paul is not quite finished yet. For in the last sentence of our text, while driving home that our works play no part in our salvation, we do learn what we have been saved for. And that's our last point. Now the gospel of God's grace in Christ through faith has from the beginning been open to abuse in the sense, well, if it's all grace and only through faith, we can sin all the more so that grace may abound. You know, we read that also in Paul's explanation in Romans chapter 6, after he had thoroughly defended, we are saved out of grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. People were saying that. Let's sin all the more, so grace may abound. And he answered very vigorously in our translation, says, by no means, but actually you could even say it stronger, God forbid that you talk that way. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Now this question is also addressed in our catechism on Lord's Day 24, when it is asked if the gospel of justification through faith will make people careless and profane. Now in our text, Paul's first concern is to make sure we don't claim credit for any good works that we may do. And he does that by describing 
believers as God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Reminds us again also of the words in the opening chapter where God chose us in Christ that we should be holy and blameless before him. And that we have been created for good works is reinforced by the he writes that God prepared these works ahead of them that we should walk in them. Almost the way it's put there, that God prepared them ahead of us, for us. You can almost picture it a bit, you know, when, when a mother has children and the children are getting a bit older and then they, they want to dress themselves. Now, a mother knows you can't just let that go to their own wishes because then they're going to come out in the morning with different socks on, maybe the pants on backwards and the wrong shirt that doesn't match at all with the pants. So what a mother will do is she will take the clothes and lay them all out for the child on the chair, even in the order they have to put them on. And the child sees them in the morning and feels a great sense of accomplishment because he or she dressed her or himself. Great, you know, but mother showed away. These are the clothes are prepared for the day. Well, that's what God does. He has laid the works out for us, and we just have to go now and do them. But he is the one who initiates, he shows the way. We can even think about how he gives us the Ten Commandments. He says, this is how you do it. This is how you live as my children. Now here I draw your attention to the way that Paul, in a sense, comes full circle. Because he began this part of his letter by mentioning how his readers once walked in their trespasses and sins. That is, in their evil works. And then he concludes by writing about how they are now walking in the good works that God has prepared for them. And this reinforces that we truly have been made alive. We have been made to sit with Christ in the heavenly places. And now already we may begin to experience the immeasurable riches of his grace at work in us and through us. Because when Christ gets a hold of us, things change. Your life cannot stay the same. Because there is a new energy, a new life at work in us. A life that is worked by the Holy Spirit. And so we can sum it up by saying that we are not saved because of our good works. But we are saved for the purpose of good works. For the purpose of walking in obedience to God's will. And as we pull together all we have heard, we can see how it lays out for us from what we have been saved, how we have been saved, and for what we have been saved. You know, the very themes you could say that, that our catechism kind of nicely spells out for us. Anyone who's gone through catechism will have sensed indeed the connection. From what? From our sins. How? In Christ, through faith. For what? Thankfulness. Now, Beautiful passage, therefore, really. If you want a passage in the Bible where you can, in a short time, kind of talk about all the different aspects of the gospel of salvation. I say that you're talking to a stranger. How do you explain the gospel? Well, you've got to talk about sin. Read Ephesians 2. Talk about what Christ has done. Talk about why he has done it. For what purpose? You find it all in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. Would be good, therefore, to have this chapter, you could say, at the top of your mental memory bank. Nowadays, also, when people like to put screensavers on their computers with 
important Bible passages. If you want a Bible passage that captures the whole gospel, basically, in a few verses, you go to Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, and press it upon your mind. Here, all the dimensions of the gospel come to the fore in a powerful, succinct, a beautiful way. Really, you could say, the gospel in a nutshell. So if you want the gospel in a nutshell, think of this passage. If you want to be able to explain it to others, think of this passage. Here is rich food for our souls. But we need to make it our own. Don't just say, well, I know these things factually. No, you can say we have to make it our own. We have to appropriate it so that we say it's true. By nature, I am a child of wrath. But this is the glorious gospel of grace. I have been saved by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I have died with him. I have become alive with him. I already may sit in the heavens with him. I may begin to live a life that pleases and praises God. Makes us realize grace is truly amazing. And therefore we can ask ourselves, what shall we render to our Savior now? Well, how about offering a sacrifice of thankfulness and praise? Amen.